welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. Have you ever uh, been accused of doing something you just didn't do? Have you ever had somebody lie about you and something you've said or done? Do you know the pain of that type of a situation? Having lies spread about you? Few things get us more worked up or emotional than being blamed for something we simply didn't do. But conversely to that, have you ever been accused of something that you actually did do? Perhaps you did something wrong and you felt the shame and the desire to hide it, but somebody pointed it out anyways. Or perhaps you did something that was righteous, but somebody twisted it and distorted it to make it look evil. In a fallen and broken world, those things happen all the time. We are living more and more in a day in which the righteous things that we do are viewed as unrighteous by those who hate God. I want you to know, if you've ever found yourself in any of those types of situations, Jesus is familiar with both types of accusations. He was accused of things he didn't do, and he was also accused of things he did do that were then distorted into something he didn't mean. At his trial, Jesus was falsely accused of wanting to destroy the physical temple. He was accused of being against the law of Moses. These were not true. But what we have in today's passage, in John 5, 19-47, Jesus is accused by the Jewish leaders of claiming to be equal with God. And Jesus did, in fact, make that claim. This erupted last week, as we saw, because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And his claim was, why was he allowed to do that? Because his father was working up until now, and he has to work up until now. And the Jews look at that and say, he is making himself equal with the father. That is the situation around today's very long explanation by Jesus. The Jews were right. Jesus was making a claim to be equal with the father. And in every other instance, if a person claims to be God, you should be very, very skeptical of that person. I have met people who have walked up to me and told me they were God. I did not believe them. But sometimes people who deny the full divinity of Christ look at passages like we have today. They they will say things like, Jesus may be a God, but he is not the God. You find this in movements like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. They will say Jesus is divine, but he's not the full God. And they say the Jews here in John 5 and the Jews in John 8, they simply just misunderstand what Jesus means. Jesus is saying he is divine, but he's not really fully the one God. 
They say he is not claiming to be the second person of the Trinity, but a divine and separate being. But we can't get this wrong. I want to stress that today. If we get Jesus wrong, we get God wrong. If we say Jesus is God and he's not, that means that Christians for 2,000 years have been worshiping a false god. But conversely, if we say Jesus is not God and he is, then we are denying the true God. These are the stakes that this discussion revolves around. And so Jesus here is accused by the Jews of making himself equal with God the Father, not like God the Father, but equal with God the Father, and Jesus does not deny it. In fact, Jesus acknowledges it, and he acknowledged the accuracy of it, and then he sets out to explain it and defend himself. In other words, this is an accurate attack upon Christ, as far as the content goes, though they distort it. So what we see in this passage is that Jesus was sent by the Father, he is one with him, and as such, he has the same authority as the Father. And that's what we're going to dive into today. Beginning in verses 19 through 20, we see this truth, that the Father and the Son are one. They are united. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus said this to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. So Jesus starts his defense, his explanation, by pointing to the inherent unity between him and the Father. He says, the Son does nothing according to his own designs or purposes. The Son is in perfect unity of will and direction as the Father. Jesus does nothing independent of his Father because he is one with him. The Father and the Son are equal in some sense. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father upholds the universe. So does the Son. Now let me make this point very, very clear. In order to do that, in order to likewise uphold the universe, you have to have the power to uphold the universe. You must have the same power the Father has. This is what is inherent to the doctrine of the Trinity. So let me, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those hard doctrines. It's not impossible to understand, but it, it challenges us. It teaches this, that there is one God, one God who exists in three persons. And while these three persons are perfectly unified, Specific acts find their end in a specific person of the Trinity. So let me point this out to you. It was the Son who was incarnated, not the Father. It was the Son who died upon the cross, not the Father. But the Son did not do this independently. The three are always acting in unison together. And so we read here, the Father has power over life and death, and so does the Son. And we can also say, so does the Spirit. 
Why? Because all three are equal in nature or in substance. They are all equally God. Perfect in love, in unity, and in will. And so the Son operates in perfect unison with His Father. But He can only do this if He has the same power or abilities that the Father has. The same nature. Let me, let me give you an example. Let me put this on, on a, a childlike level, level here. I am teaching my sons how to play basketball. I'm teaching them how to play basketball. In no way does my son do everything that I can do on a basketball court. He just can't. He's learning from me, right? But I'm six foot seven, I can dunk, he can't. That ability gap does not exist between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. The abilities the Father has, the Son has. And this is why the Gospel of John opens with this in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through the Son. The Son is the Creator God. But that does not mean the Father does nothing in creation or the Spirit does nothing in creation. All of them work together. And so we have here some inherent equality between the Father and the Son, but we also see the Son in some form of submission to the Father. This is where we all get a little bit nervous. I want to make very clear here, the submission is not in the nature. There is no hierarchy within the Trinity's nature, but it has to do with the role. The Son, in some way, follows the lead of His Father. He sees what His Father does, and He does it. This is inherent to being a son and to being a father. D.A. Carson puts it this way in his commentary on John. He says, The Father initiates. He sends. He commands. He commissions. He grants. The Son responds, obeys, performs His Father's will, and receives authority. In this sense, the Son is the Father's agent, though as John goes on to insist, He is so much more than just His agent. And so the point Jesus makes is clear. He and the Father do the same things. Therefore, they have the same power. They work in tandem together, never against one another. They have different roles, yes, but they are one in nature. And again... The Trinity is meant to humble us. It's not contradictory. God is one in nature, one in one way, three in persons, three in a different way. It's not contradictory, but it is hard to understand. And that's what it's supposed to be. We cannot treat God as if he is some beetle that we can pin up and dissect him and have complete understanding of him. God is infinite. We are not. When we study God, we should be driven to humility and wondering how can we even know anything about Him? We know because He has spoken. We know because He has come to us to reveal Himself. But Jesus wants to expand on this 
And he's going to expand on this by ex- explaining his current authority. They say, Jesus, you're saying that you're equal with the Father. Jesus is saying, yes, I am. I do the same things that my Father does. And then he's going to explain that even more by talking about his present authority. Verses 21 through 24. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. I think these are some of the strongest and most shocking statements that Jesus can make about his authority and his relationship to the Father. If you really understand what Jesus is getting at here, you really start to understand why they wanted to kill him. They didn't kill Jesus because he was too nice. Contrary to what some people want you to think. They killed Jesus because he made shocking statements again and again. And the statements he makes here, I think, should sober everyone who's in this room. Because if what Jesus says here is true then getting Jesus right is the most important thing in the whole universe. He makes at least four claims here, and I want, I want to pick them apart a little bit here. Four claims. First, Jesus claims to have power right now over life and death, just like the Father does. He's going to back this up later on in John chapter 11. He's going to go to the tomb of Lazarus, and he's going to say to Mary and Martha, I have that power now. I am the resurrection and the life right now. Not just future, but right now. But he says here, just as the Father has the power to give life, so do I. As the Father can give life, the Father can take life, so can I. This is a blatant claim to divinity. He's claiming to be the source of life. Only God is the source of life. He's claiming to have authority over life and death. Only God has that authority. The prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 37... God gives him a vision. He brings him out to this valley full of dead and dry bones. And he, he says to the prophet, hey, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's like, like a good prophet. He goes, I don't know, God, can they? I don't know. He knows that, no, they shouldn't live, but God's here, so life could come. And God brings life where there was death. So when Jesus says that he has the ability to bring life and to bring death, he is saying, I am that same God. Ezekiel 37. His second claim here, and I think perhaps is more shocking, Jesus claims the Father has given all judgment over to him. Who's the judge of the universe? God is. More specifically, who's the judge of the universe? Jesus. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Let that sit with you for a moment. All judgment belongs to Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus is not talking about judgmentalism here. But when we answer the question, who will judge the living and the dead on the last day? God will do so through Jesus Christ. This is a testimony, our testimony to us again and again in the New Testament. Jesus is the judge. 
you and I will stand before the incarnated Lord Jesus Christ to face judgment. There are so many very, 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 very popular versions of Jesus out there that in essence neuter him. They just paint him as someone who will only affirm and accept us. But the real Jesus is a complex character who's always doing things that people don't expect. He's always doing things that catch us off guard. He's really hard to put into a box. But every age has tried to take Jesus and conform him to whatever their wishes are of that day. Ours is a day, for example, that wants to emphasize the foot-washing Jesus in a very unbiblical way. And they ignore the plain teaching that he is the judge. They ignore the picture in Revelation of him treading the, the grapes of God's wrath and the blood dripping off his cloak. Jesus will judge. Let me rephrase it. Jesus will cast people into eternal outer darkness. Jesus will cast people into eternal fire. And if your picture of Jesus excludes this reality, you are worshiping a carved wooden little idol Jesus. The same Jesus who will judge sinners, and this is why he's so complex, also welcomes in sinners who repent and believe. We, we want him safe and in this box, but he's just so complicated that you should just fall down and worship him. He does this, and then he also does this. It's a seeming paradox for us. But we all know that it is only God who can be the judge of the universe. The Bible is clear on this. Genesis 8, or 18, 25. God is the judge of all the earth. When Jesus is saying, I have all judgment, he is saying, I'm God. And he executes that judgment even now. Third, Jesus also says he has the power to give you eternal life. He has the power to give you new spiritual life right now. Not just eternal life in the future, but right now. Listen very carefully to verse 24. Truly, truly, when Jesus says something like that, pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense, he has passed from death to life. If you have come to Jesus, right now you have eternal life. Right now you have passed from death into life. Now to be sure, you have that eternal life in a seed form that's not yet fully there. But it is yours. It is yours right now. That's why no one can take it from you. And so that judgment and that curse that hangs over our heads because of sin is no longer there because Christ has removed it. The judge of the universe. Fourth, Jesus says this means you cannot have a relationship with God the Father without coming through the Son. Verse 23 that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is saying he is worthy of the same honor as the Father. If he's a lesser divinity, he's not worthy of the same honor as the Father. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are very, very wrong. 
You don't give the same honor to a lesser being. He has a clear claim to equality, so much so that he says, the only way to God the Father, Jesus says, is if you come through me. That's it. If you reject Jesus, you reject the Father. Why? Because they are one. Jesus does not just possess these powers, we should say for right now, but there's a destination to these powers, a goal. He now looks forward in verses 24, or 25 through 29. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus speaks here in a rather cryptic way. He says, The hour is coming and is here when the dead will hear his voice and they will live. Well, what does he mean? I think he's foreshadowing John 11 here. A man who is literally dead in a tomb, Jesus by his voice will call him out and he will live. But then he says the hour is also coming where the Son will call everyone out of their tombs and everyone will rise either to judgment or to life. And we have here again that we talk about often this already not yet tension in the Gospels. You have eternal life now, but you don't have the fullness of that eternal life yet. Jesus is the judge of the universe right now, already, but the final judgment is not yet here. Jesus already has power over life and death, but the final resurrection to eternal life and eternal death is not yet here. The hour is coming, he says, when everyone will be called out of their tombs by the Son. So just as Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus and by a word of command brought life, one day he'll do that for everyone. You don't do that unless you're God. Some will go to eternal life, some to eternal judgment. And the dividing line is how we respond to Jesus Christ. Everything hinges upon your relationship to Jesus. So the question becomes, quite naturally, where do you stand with him? Do you really believe in this kind of a Jesus? The one from the Bible. After today, you won't be able to claim ignorance or say that Jesus is some neutered little puppy dog who only just wants to make you feel good. For you'll be standing one day before the true Jesus who is God. And I want to make this point very, very clear. The only hope for any of us on that day, myself included, is that your sins will be paid for by him. The only hope is Christ's mercy, that his blood will have sealed you into a new covenant. These are really big claims that Jesus makes in John 5. And so the question becomes, why should anyone believe him? I, for one, am not in the habit of believing people who say they're God. This is the question Jesus addresses throughout the rest of John 5. 
Why should anyone believe these claims? Why should the Jews listen to him? And here the theme of witnesses to who Jesus is comes to the forefront. Verses 30 through 47 is Jesus taking almost a lawyer-like tactic here, a distinct legal and courtroom feel to these final verses, in which he is going to put his opponents on trial and prove that he is who he says he is, that he is God in the flesh. And Jesus appeals to many different witnesses to make his point. And he does this because the law of God requires him to do so. How is a charge established? How do we ever move past something that is a he said, she said? We still use that terminology today. God's law says we can only do that if there are two or three witnesses. If there are only two witnesses to an event and they utterly disagree on what happened, what you have is a he said, she said. No one knows what really happened. There are only two people and they say completely different things. A charge is not established. We have inherited this standard into our own legal system. We call it corroborating evidence. One's person testimony is never enough. Why do we have that standard? Well, it's far too easy for one person who is aggrieved, who is upset or angry, to lie about someone else to settle a score. You've all probably had it happen to you and you've all probably done it. But God lays out this standard in the Old Testament again and again. Deuteronomy 17.6 On the evidence of two or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. This is the standard Jesus is appealing to in verse 31 when he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying that if it's only me, then I'm lying. He's saying that I haven't met the standard for truth yet if it's only me saying these things. So what Jesus does is he gives four witnesses to his claims of divinity, and then he gives a witness who will testify against them for rejecting him. The requirement is to the three witnesses. Jesus goes above and beyond. Who are these witnesses? First, he, God has given John the Baptist as a witness to who Jesus is. Jesus says, there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. God said through the prophets, I'm going to send a prophet who will prepare the way. And John, in his public ministry, gave a public testimony that this is the Lamb of God. This is the one who is going to come after me who is greater than me. And so Jesus here pleads with the Jews. He says, I'm saying these things that you might believe, that you might be saved. He doesn't want them to be condemned. He gives another witness. The second witness this corroborating evidence is the miracles that Christ performs. Verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
Up to this point in the Gospel of John, we've had sign after sign after sign. Jesus healed the sick. He turned water into wine. He brought back the dead. He performs all of these signs, and they testify that he is the one. This whole disagreement started because he took a man who had been crippled for 38 years, and by the power of his voice, he said, get up, and the guy got up. And they got mad that he healed somebody. He says, this is a testimony to you about who I am. And speaking of his miracles in Matthew 11, Jesus says this. He says, If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Let that sit on you for a moment. That wretched city of Sodom and Gomorrah Jesus says, if they would have seen the mighty works, if they would have seen this testimony, they would have repented and they'd still be around today, Jesus said, but you are worse than Sodom because you won't believe. Third witness Jesus gives is the Father himself is a witness. Verses 37 through 38, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. Jesus says the Father has testified about who He is. There's a lot of disagreement as to what Jesus is referring to here. This could be a reference to God speaking at Jesus' baptism. The problem with that is the Gospel of John doesn't record that, so there's a good chance that that's not what Jesus is talking about here, but it could be. Whatever Jesus has in mind here, it is clear that he is aiming it as a condemnation at those who reject him. Jesus and the Father are one. To reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And that means these people are not like, are, are not like their fathers. Moses, Jacob, Abraham are the prophets. Jesus quite literally tells them that unlike their fathers, God has never spoken to them. They have never heard their father, like Moses did. They have never believed his voice. And the evidence of that is their rejection of him. The fourth and final witness Jesus gives is Scripture itself. Verses 39 through 40. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says the scriptures have life in them because they point to me. The gospels are written in such a way, we've seen this already in the gospel of John, that they're just dripping with Old Testament quotes and allusions and references. The prophet said the Messiah would come. And when he came, his work would be marked by wine and weddings and healings and being rejected. And all of these things happened to Jesus. These were written centuries before Christ came. If you read the Old Testament to find life, you can find life in the Old Testament, but only if you see Jesus in it. The Old Testament scriptures scream to us about who Jesus is, and in that they have life. And to reject Jesus as they did demonstrates that they never understood those scriptures. And so they have no life. 
the sheer volumes of prophecies written centuries before the life of Christ that Christ fulfills is a resounding witness that Jesus is who he says he is. It is truly a marvel to sit down, to read and to study the Old Testament and the New Testament, the many different authors in many different contexts using many different languages in different centuries, and it all fits together somehow. And they all center on one person. This is the most damning witness of them all for those who reject Jesus, especially for the Jews. God gave them a book. He said, this is what the Messiah will be like. The Messiah comes and does those things, and they say, that ain't him. These are the four witnesses who affirm Jesus' claim to divinity, but then he gives them a witness who will accuse them for rejecting Christ, Moses. Verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They love Moses, but in rejecting Christ, Moses will reject them. And so they stand condemned by the very one they point to. That's a lot to go over on a Sunday morning. But you can see that Jesus is accused of making himself equal with God, and he says, yep, guilty as charged. But you have rejected me. What are we to take from all of this? I want to make three very, very quick applications for you. The first one is is rather clear. You must get Jesus right. He's one with the Father. He is God in the flesh. And he is the most important and determinative issue in your entire life is understanding Jesus correctly. To get Jesus right is to get God right. To get Jesus wrong is to get God wrong. If the Bible is correct, and it is, then getting Jesus right or wrong determines your eternal destination. As others have pointed out, Jesus can never be moderately important. Either he's just a straight-up liar and he's not important at all, or he's God. He can't be kind of important. Second, to understand Scripture correctly, you must see all of it in light of Jesus. All of it. The Scriptures have the power of eternal life in them because of who they tell us about. They tell us about Jesus. And so when you read your scripture, you must always ask at some point, how does this tie in with Jesus, and how does it then apply to me through Jesus? Third, this means the Old Testament is not just a throwaway, boring part of scripture. There are literally popular teachers out there who want to de-emphasize the importance of the Old Testament, who want to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. If you unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, you unhitch yourself from Jesus Christ. If you de-emphasize the Old Testament, you will eventually de-emphasize the true Jesus Christ. If you follow any teacher who tells you that understanding the whole of Scripture is not important, he is a false teacher, find someone else to listen to. The Bible is a unified whole meant to be read together with Jesus at the center. Or as Paul says to Timothy, 
All of it is God-breathed. All of it is profitable to make you fully equipped for every good work. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we pause this morning to thank you that you came to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us your word so that in it we might see him clearly. We confess to you that understanding all the intricacies of the two natures of Christ, the three persons of the Trinity, that all of these are very humbling to us. But we confess also that they are our only hope. That Christ is God in the flesh. And that in his flesh he bore our sins. He died for us. He rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He rules over all things and he is coming back. Christ alone is our hope. So Lord, strengthen us by that truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.